You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Peel, and each week you'll hear from artists, entrepreneurs, and others who have found that betting on themselves has made all the difference. I had a great time talking this last week with Jared Rallison, founder and winemaker at Rallison Cellars. Jared is practically an encyclopedia when it comes to the science of winemaking. So my hope is that this podcast is one you can enjoy on your way to some wine tasting, or even as just a good crash course on what goes into making a great wine. He's a great teacher and very passionate about what he does, so I recommend making a trip to try out his wine. The business side of things is interesting too, and so if you ever wondered what happens behind the scenes at wineries and what goes into making a great wine, I think you'll find a great resource here too. I had a lot of fun, so I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. I've been making wine, this will be my 18th harvest. And how I got into it, I was from I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was making beer with my neighbor. And my neighbor said, hey, we should try to make some wine. I said, dude, we're in Utah. You can't make wine in Utah. And he said, yeah, you're right, that's impossible. So my inside voice said, challenge accepted. So that fall, we ended up getting 250 pounds of Cabernet and 250 pounds of Riesling from Idaho. And then we made some really bad wine. But then a couple of years later, it started to click. And that's when I decided, you know, the 10-year plan is to have a small winery and have a small vineyard. And that came mature in 2011. Where was the line for you between like, having this really cool hobby and deciding that's what you want to do for a living? That line, you know, really came mature in 2009 when we moved here from Utah. Um, that's when I realized it was actually going to happen. And then two years later is when we built the winery and opened up the business. Is there a reason you were wanting to get out of pharmaceuticals? Well, that's that's my 10-year plan that'll come mature in 2021, okay. um, but that's not going real well because I wanted to get the house paid off before I quit and do the winery full-time. Kind of de-risk it? Yeah. The problem is I don't want this to become a job. I don't want to have to say, you know, I have this mortgage payment I have to make every month. I've got bills to pay. Right, just because it's stressful. Stressful. And once it becomes stressful, then it's no longer fun. And we're having too much fun with it right now. I don't want to see that go away. I guess when you were roughly my age, out of college a couple of years, or even while you were in college, what made you want to go into pharmaceuticals instead of agriculture or something? Well, I wasn't doing anything with wine back at that time when I was in college. Or, um, or even beer brewing or anything like that. So I started brewing beer before I could legally drink beer. Is that why you were brewing beer? That and the fact that, you know, I couldn't get it, but also I'm the type of guy where I want to do things that are hands-on. I want to create something, something tangible, something that I can share with people. And the reason I got into the pharmaceutical role is I don't have an office. I've got a virtual office, so it's a rental car, it's a hotel room, it's my house. Um, I did not want a job where I was stuck in a cubicle, which I did for about six years when I worked for the insurance companies before getting into the pharmaceutical side. So I wanted something with some diversity, something that's out and about, something that's not trapped inside of an office. And that's a segue right into the wine business because, I mean, you're never indoors. You're always outdoors. You know, before harvest, you're walking the vineyards, taking samples, doing lab work. And it takes you to different places, you know, different places, different vineyards, different parts of the state that I'd probably never get to if I wasn't in the business. So this might be kind of an impossible question to answer, but like, what's a typical, is, is there like a typical day for you? No, no, that's what makes it so much fun. I mean, every day is different with the tasting room. You know, I don't always work it. I've got somebody that works it, but I might get a text from him that he's busy. You know, it might be busy on a Thursday. It might be dead on a Saturday. There's just no typical, there's no routine. 
And then with the winemaking process itself, that's always different because the grapes that come in, they're never the same. It's not like making beer or making bread where it's a recipe. Every year you have to tweak the process um, to try to make a wine that's balanced that ultimately consumers will like and buy. Does that depend on what kind of grapes? Like you have to be flexible to the grapes? Is that yep. Like so it's all of the above. It's not only the grape varietal, but it's also what the growing season gave you, you know, yeah. and that's what, that's what makes it so cool because it's not, it's not a recipe. You know, every year you might get grapes from the same vineyard, but year over year, they're never the same. And you always have to tweak the process. My impression is that you produce kind of a variety of wines one year to the next, like you jump around a little bit. It is. I like to mix it up. So we don't do the same varietal year over year because I hear from a lot of my customers that they used to be a customer of X winery. But the reason they no longer go there is because they always have the same varietals. You know, they always have Pinot Noir, they always have Pinot Gris, they always have Chardonnay. So what I like to do year over year is bring in different varietals, something that a customer doesn't typically see. So an example is this past fall, I brought in Alberino, um, which is a really unique grape. It's a Spanish white wine that's very full-bodied and aromatic. And that really intrigues people because they've never tasted it before. I also made an ice wine, and then I also made a port from Zinfandel grapes, which is red, and then a port from Viognier grapes. So my customers come to the tasting room or they come to the winery and there's always something unique and something different for them to taste. Do you feel like that causes problems in terms of quality? Because you're always doing something like a little bit for like the first time? Um, yeah, there was one year I brought in some Cab Franc and I screwed it up and it turned out really bad. So I didn't bottle it or, or do anything with it. But What made it bad? Well, it was the grapes were underripe and the fermentation wasn't done correctly. We didn't have enough nutrients in there. So it smelled like a burnt match. It just didn't turn out. So we, we got rid of that. But doing what we do is a little bit of a lot of different grapes. So I'm not making, you know, hundreds or thousands of cases of each grape varietal. Typically, we'll make about 100 cases of each varietal. But if you're, if you're watching the process, and after 18 years, you know, I, I've learned what to do and more importantly, what not to do. So, you know, with that many years of experience, you're just kind of shooting from the hip with new varietals, but you just look back to, you know, successes that you've had and what worked and what didn't work. So the biggest thing is when the grapes come in, um, the red grapes, we ferment on the skins, the white grapes, we ferment just the juice. But when the grapes come in, we do a, a juice panel, which gives us all of the chemistry that we need to understand, the levels of sugar, the levels of acidity, and a really important piece, um, you know, talking back to the Cab Franc that I made, is the yan, which is the total available nitrogen. So if you're low in nitrogen, it's just like fertilizer for your grass. The grass isn't going to grow. If you're low in nitrogen in the wine, then your yeast cells are not going to grow, and then they're going to develop that sulfur aroma that I was telling you about. But, you know, the first principles with winemaking is understand the chemistry and then understanding different parts of the process that impacts the outcome of the wine. So a great example is with white wines, if you ferment it too hot, then they're not going to have the fruity smells. They're not going to have all the aromas. But if you ferment it cold, then it's going to preserve all of those aromas. And with red wine, it's similar as well, because if it's a cold ferment, you're just going to get fruit components. You're not going to get any of the tannins, any of the, you know, the, 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 the phenolics, any of the, the bigger mouthfeel components that you get into a wine if you ferment it hotter. So just depending upon the chemistry of the grape and depending upon, you know, your style of what you're trying to accomplish, 
you know, you're going to mix it up with fermentation temperatures. Um, you're going to mix it up with fermentation time, how much time it gets on the skin. And then with red wines, you're also going to mix it up with barrels. If you use more new barrels, then your end product is going to be more oaky than if you use more neutral barrels. So what we do every year is we look at the chemistry, we taste the base wine, and we decide how much new oak to give it. Because new oak's important, but if you give it too much, then it's just going to be an oaky, out-of-balance wine. And the way that I look at oak is I look at it like hops in beer. If you drink the pale ale, it's not going to be real hoppy, but if you drink an IPA, it's going to be hoppy as hell. And just depending upon the style, you know, it's the same thing with oak. Too much is, is too much, in my opinion. I've got just like a number of other variables, and I kind of, I'm not at all knowledgeable in wine, but I, I would like to be, and I imagine like some listeners would also like to be. Can we go through some of those and sure. you talk about like kind of like what the influence of it is? Absolutely. The, the best way to learn about wine is to go out in the Willamette Valley and just do some tasting. You know, you're going to taste some varietals that you're going to like over others, but that's the best way to learn about it is just to go and taste. Uh, like what's the impact of elevation? And if there's not really, or like, it's just like boring to you, we can skip over. No, no, that's a, that's a great question. So elevation is, is significant with growing grapes because the higher the vineyard, the cooler the site's going to be. The cooler the site's going to be means the grapes are going to get ripened later. So the warmer the site, the earlier the grapes are going to ripen. The cooler the site, the later they're going to ripen. Okay. Uh, so what's the impact of that timing? Well, year over year, it's different. Um, you know, like 2013, we got rains the first week in September. And if it was a late ripening site, the rains came in and people just didn't get good fruit. Um, 2012 um, was a great year and what we say in the business is that if you couldn't make a good 2012 pinot noir you shouldn't be in the business so you know there's many variables with harvest many variables with the the site elevation and based on picking but the fall can either you know make you money or you can you can lose it because if you have a bad fall then you're not going to have a good harvest and when i say bad i mean wet and rainy and cold because again you need that heat in order to ripen up the grapes and you want to pick it late, but you don't want to pick it when the rains come in because then you get mildew and a bunch of other stuff that happens with it. At what point do you know what you're going to make with the grapes? So as far as the varietals go, you know, I know what varietals I'm going to bring in this fall. Um, but when the grapes actually come in the door, you know, then that's when we make the decision of what style of a wine we're going to make. So one example is um, it's really fashionable right now for people to make a rosé. And you can make a rosé from any red grape. But I was planning on making a rosé from my neighbor's vineyard. Um, you know, we walked it. We did some preliminary lab work. But three days later when the grapes came in, it was not a candidate for a rosé. The fruit was too ripe. It was just too beautiful to make a white wine out of it. So instead we made a Pinot Noir and we barreled it up. So at the beginning of the year, you know what varietals you're going to bring in but you really don't know the style until the grapes come in the door. So it's kind of opportunistic. How much flexibility is there in that? Well, there's a lot. I mean, you know, the winemaker, the cellar staff, I mean, you have to be flexible. It's not like you can just go down to the grocery store and buy, you know, a couple ton of new grapes. You know, when the grapes come in the door, you have to be flexible. And you just have to do with whatever, you know, the grapes tell you to do. So an example of that is 2011. It was a really cool growing year. 
And I had two vineyards that we knew the grapes were not going to ripen up. And if the grapes are not ripe enough, it's just going to make a real thin, acidic wine. So I decided we'll make a sparkling wine, basically a champagne out of those grapes. So we picked the grapes at low sugars, high acid, and then we made a sparkling wine that turned out really good. And a lot of my customers say, when are you going to make another sparkling wine? And my response is, when the grapes tell me it needs to be a sparkling wine. And that hasn't happened since 2011. You can get like such a different product just based on weather, you know? That's what makes it so much fun. What's the impact of rain during the growing season? So rain is, is a big impact. Um, so at the beginning of the growing season, if it's cool, you're not going to get bud break, which means um, you're going to have a later harvest. But in the fall and in the growing season, the biggest pressure that we have in the vineyard is powdery mildew. So if powdery, if powdery mildew sets in, you know, you're not going to get a harvest. So we spray every 10 to 14 days for mildew. And mildew, you know, pretty much likes the 70 degree humid climate. And that's where mildew is going to spore and populate. So if you've got a warmer, drier year, you're not going to have that mildew pressure. So that's the biggest thing with rain is just the humidity and, and the, the presence of, of mildew in the vineyard. But not so much like a flavor thing. Then. No, not a flavor thing. Obviously, the, the grapes need water in order to grow. The vines that are established, those roots go so deep that there's always water that's available for them. Uh, what's the impact of the age of the grapevines? So if the grapes are younger, their roots aren't as deep. And if their roots are not as deep, then they don't have access to water. Um, the other thing is with them being younger, they're going to ripen up quicker because um, they're more susceptible to the heat than vines that are established. So the more established the vines are, the later you're probably going to get a harvest. The younger they are, the earlier you'll get a harvest. Is there any impact on quality of wine that they produce? You know, that's, that's a great question. I don't know, to be honest with you. What I've heard from a lot of old timers in the valley is that the younger Pinot Noirs produce a better wine than the older ones. And also in the industry, they talk about old Zinfandel vines, vines that are 100 years old. And Zinfandel, from what I hear, um, if they're older grapes, they, they're better wine than if they're younger grapes. So I think it's just, you know, it, it's kind of random based on the grape and what they do because I know that in Italy in Chianti they replant their Sangiovese like every 20 years so they don't let them get super old how old can grapevines get as long as they're not disease ridden you know they could be 100 they could be 200 years um, there's one vineyard that I work with in Washington State where I get Zinfandel and um, that Zinfandel was planted in 1972 and they're they're healthy and they're they're not they don't have any disease and you know they'll continue to they'll continue to to age um, just based on the fact if they don't get any disease. How do you decide where to source grapes from? So uh, most of the vineyards that I work with they're in the Willamette Valley, so they're close by. Um, a couple of vineyards that I work with in Washington State, I've got some other guys in the business where they bought fruit from those vineyards. So, you know, they could speak to the quality of what's coming out of there. And what I always do is I, I do a small amount with a new relationship, maybe a ton, uh, make a couple barrels, see how the wine turns out. And the other piece is not just the grapes, but how's the grower to work with? You know, are they willing to take suggestions on to make improvements? Are they willing to change their spray program if there's something they use that I don't like? 
So it's not only the quality of the fruit, but also has the relationship with the grower. Relationships are, are key with everything in the business, not only with um, your growers, but also growing grapes. Um, I've got a great relationship with the guy that, that manages my vineyard. And there's been times where I've called him at night and say, hey, I've got a site I need you to pick the next morning. And since we've got such a great relationship, you know, he makes it work. So relationships are really key. You talked a little bit about this um, with like the different temperatures, like hot versus cold and like the different aromatic qualities that you can get out of it. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about like the fermentation of, fermentation process and like the different things you can tweak within that to get different outputs? Sure, sure. So the whites we talked about, the cooler, the more aromatic, fruity components it's going to have. And with reds, um, you know, if you ferment too hot, you're just going to get all tannin. And again, if you ferment too cold, you're just going to get a lighter, um, thinner bodied wine. But if it's a grape that is super ripe, where it's got a lot of color available in the skins, then I'll tend to ferment on the cooler side and I'll do a shorter ferment. So reds take a couple, or reds can take anywhere from seven to 14 days to ferment on the skins. You know, you'll get fermentation temperatures up to 90 degrees, which I typically don't let that happen. And then once fermentation is done or almost done on the reds, then you press the skins lightly. And one thing that you can do in winemaking with reds is you can press the skins earlier. So that way you're not fermenting for longer periods of time on the skins. Cause the longer you have it on the skins, the more tannin you're going to get from the grave. So that's one thing you can do to change with the reds. Um, and then the whites, you know, if you're making, let's say you're making a Chardonnay, that's going to be a sparkling wine. You're not going to want that really fruity. You want it to be more of a neutral flavor. So you won't ferment it super cold. You'll let it finish up in maybe about a month. Are there different yeast strains for different varieties or is it more of a ghost of temperature or different flavors? How, how does that work? All of the above. So there's, there's different yeast strains that give different attributes to the wine. Some yeast strains will enhance the, the varietal character. Some yeast strains are more neutral. Some yeast strains can tolerate a higher alcohol. Some yeast strains will metabolize certain acids. Um, and the yeast strain catalog is, it's a catalog, it's a book. There's so many different strains to pick from. Some are fast fermenters, some are slow fermenters, um, many different, a ton of different strains. And what I do is I, I like to mix up the yeast strain. You know, maybe I'll just ferment half of it with a different new yeast strain and see what flavors that does and just do some trials based on the different strains. And another interesting piece with the yeast strains is Let's say I get four ton that come in from my vineyard. I'll ferment a ton in separate fermenters. So I'll have four different fermenters. And I'll use maybe two fermenters with a yeast strain that will enhance the body. Maybe I'll use a yeast strain in one of the fermenters that will give more of the cherry nose. And then maybe I'll use another yeast strain that's going to give more spice. So the different strains give different flavors, and then at the end of ferment, you blend all of that together. So you kind of come up with a blend of just different yeast strains. You kind of have like different, almost like spices. If you're cooking something, you can you got like it. Mix, mix in a little bit more like oregano to your spaghetti, or a little bit more yep. basil or whatever. And that's what winemaking is. It's a balancing act. It's, it's like cooking. A lot of people say, oh, it's all chemistry, it's all science. It's not. 
it's 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 a lot of you know art it's a lot of i know what this grape tastes like raw i know that it's going to have a lot of body what am i going to do with the different yeast strains and one other thing that i do back to working with new vineyards so 2014 i started to work with a new vineyard and i used a yeast strain that is very neutral so that way i could taste the wine and understand what that vineyard grows and then in 15 i use different yeast strains to give it different flavors so you kind of need to understand the baseline of what that vineyard does and then you can mess around with using different strains to give it different complexities or flavors how do you decide what's good you just make it up i mean you're just shooting from the hip <laughs> so i have a customer that that he's been a customer for a long time his name's steve and Steve came to me and said, you know, I like all of your wines. And my response to him is, we both like the same style of a wine. You know, I make the wines to a style that I like, and somebody might like that style or not like that style. You know, it's based on your personal preference. Kind of like, how do you like your steak? Medium, medium well, or, or well done? You know, it's based on what your preference is. So in terms of running a business, you generally try and bring in more people who like what you like and just kind of like play to that crowd more? Yeah, so, you know, the, making the wine is the easy part. I mean, anybody with experience, with an education in enology can make wine. Granted, there's many different styles like we talked about, but it's the selling piece that's really complicated where a lot of people have a hard time. So prior to my tasting room in Old Town Sherwood, which I opened up just about four months ago, I was opened up by appointment up at the winery. And that distribution was really difficult because people don't like to set up a time to go wine tasting. They just want to be out and about and go wine tasting. So I decided earlier in my career that my distribution was going to be almost 100% direct to consumer. You know, I didn't want to go through any distributors, any wholesalers, because if you do that, it's just cutting into your bottom line. The bad part about direct to consumer is you got to get the consumers in the door in order to buy so you have to have that distribution so when i got my license in 2011 i started to sell in 2012 and it was grassroots i mean i was at a day spa where these women were getting botox and i was pouring wine trying to sell wine to these these ladies that were in the in the day spa so lots of small little festivals um, and then we got into some of the bigger festivals, the wine and food festivals that are throughout the valley. And then we started a wine club. People started to follow us. They started to buy wine. They started to call. But you constantly have to bring in new customers because people's positions in life change. You know, they might get a divorce. They might lose their job. So they're not financially in the position to buy a luxury item, which is ultimately what wine is. So distribution is key. Um, profit is important in a small business, but without cash flow, you don't have a business. Can you talk more about how you started building that network of, of customers? Sure. So it was face-to-face -face time with customers. Um, I might have met somebody at an art walk in Sherwood. Um, and then with the wine club, you know, they get a discount if they buy wine and they buy wine regularly. So that was really how I started to build my exposure. And then next time they would come to the winery, they would bring their friends, they would bring their family. And then those folks would come back and bring some other friends. So it was truly word of mouth. I mean, just organic growth. 
and then the other piece that's that, that people forget to do is they they don't sell inside so i've done a lot of networking with other wineries um, other winemakers um, i've got you know, three or four guys that I call all the time with questions. I have them come out and, you know, have them taste something, smell something to get their, their two cents. And then also with the tasting room staff, you know, I'm out and about networking with other tasting room people. So that way, if somebody's in their tasting room and they're like, hey, where should we go next? They'll say, hey, you know, go to Rallison. They've got some great wine. I tasted through them the other day. It's, it's the buddy system. And what's really interesting in, in the business, when I moved here and started the winery, I thought that all of the other wineries would view me as competition, but we don't. We're all friends. We all represent the same thing, which is the Oregon brand brand name for wine. That's actually something my mom wanted uh, to know more about. I was at, like asking people what I should, for like questions I should ask. She wanted mm-hmm. to know more like what the whole culture was. Um, so it's pretty collaborative then. Oh, very collaborative. Um, there's no secrets you know, uh, equipment we share. I've got tanks at my place that belong to somebody else and vice versa. I got a call last year during bottling, um, one of my buddies, he's like, hey, my labeler broke down. Can I borrow your labeler? I'm like, yeah, of course. So he came and got it. So we all help one another. You know, there's always an exception to that. Um, There's a couple guys that I've met that aren't really that collaborative, but you know, 98% of the people in the business that I've met are, are very friendly, super friendly. Yeah, it's fun. I have a good time with it. It's a lot more fun to do it that way, I think. One thing, I'm, and it's not like right when we're talking about, but you mentioned it earlier, and I, keep, I want to make sure I don't forget it. What do skins do for wine? So red grapes, for the most part, there's a couple exceptions to the rule. If you take that red grape and you pinch it, the juice that comes out is crystal clear. So when you ferment on the skins, that's where all the flavor comes from and the color. So if you took just the juice and fermented clear juice from a red grape, you're gonna make a white wine. But if you ferment on the skins, that's where all the flavor, color, um, and tannin come from. And then the seeds have some impact. They give tannin. They're not giving any of the color or the fruit components. And then the other piece that'll give tannin is the barrels, how much oak you use in the red wines. So back to 2011, when I made the sparkling wine, I made a Blanc de Noir, which means white from red, and that was 100% Pinot Noir. So we took those underripe Pinot Noir grapes and gave them a light pressing so the clear juice came out, and then we fermented that for the sparkling wine. What happens if you do the, if you go the other way, do like a... Make a red from a blanc? I mean, I know you can't really make it truly red, but like, <laughs> if you like mix the skins in there? Well, I mean, that's, that's essentially what a rosé is. So a rosé, we don't ferment on the skins, but we give the juice some time with the skins so it'll give it that pink color, but it's not giving the tannins. Because tannin has to have um, alcohol in order for that to get extracted. So if you're just soaking red grapes, you know, you'll get some color out of it, but you're not getting tannin. So to, to your question, you can make a rosé out of a red wine, but you can't necessarily make a red wine out of a white grape because the white grapes have white skins. There's no color in there. So just kind of add more, more tannins, I guess. Is, is that what you're saying? So the tannins will come in fermentation on the skins. But if you're not fermenting, you're just macerating, letting the grapes sit there, the red grapes. And then you, you ferment after you remove the skins, you're going to get some color but you're not gonna get the tannin. And the tannin's that, that 
drying sensation on the side of your tongue when you drink wine. And that's why a lot of new wine drinkers don't like red wine is because red wine has so much tannin in it. And some grapes have more tannin naturally in the skins than other grapes. Like Pinot Noir is a great example. That's all. That's a thinner skin red grape where you're not going to get the tannin like you would get out of a, a heavier, bigger wine like a Cabernet or a Merlot. Those are grapes that have really thick skin. There's just a lot of tannin and color and flavor to get extracted from those skins. So just there's there's so many so many variables. It it sounds really overwhelming. I mean, oh, it is from my perspective. And and when you get into it and you actually do it, the process is relatively simple. Um, logistics can be a royal pain in the butt because you might be short on tanks, but you don't want to buy new tanks because you're not going to need the tanks all year long. You'll need it just for seven days or three days. Again, that's the reason that it's so collaborative in the business is we all you know share stuff like that. But the logistics can be a heck of a process during during harvest. Um, you know, you just you work so hard for a month during harvest, and you use so many different pieces of equipment, and then the rest of the year that equipment just sits around and doesn't get used. Um, so logistics of what can go where, and then once that tank is empty, then what's going to go in that tank? You know, you've got to do a little a little roadmap at the end of each day and understand where everything's going to go the next day. What have you found has like worked well for you in terms of selling wine? Oh, what's worked well is just being myself. I think a lot of people, you know, especially people that are new to drinking wine, they're intimidated to go wine tasting because they view it as this real complicated process and there's all these rules. You know, you're supposed to smell your wine and swirl it and sip and do this and that. And But basically what I tell everybody that comes in the tasting room, you know, especially if they're kind of uncomfortable, I'll ask them, do you know what the rules are here? And they get really kind of scared. They're like, no, what are the rules? And my response is, there are no rules. Just have a good time. Um, and then you get people that come into the tasting room that are a little bit more serious about wine. Um, you know, they're kind of wine snobs is what they are. And I can talk the talk, but I don't do that with everybody. You know, I just be myself and my tasting room manager, Stefan Beldeen, you know, what I told Stefan when he started, I said, you need to come to me if you're no longer having fun and we'll find somebody else to replace you because it's, it's about the experience. I mean, if you go into a tasting room and the wine's great and you have a good time, you know, you're gonna come back and you're gonna buy wine. But if you're not having a good time, why the hell would you want to come back? I mean, <laughs> it's wine tasting. You're supposed to be having fun. You know, it's, it's, not, it's nothing real serious. It's, you know, people get uptight about it, but we try to take the pretentiousness out of it. That kind of plays into another thing I wanted to ask you about. What's your philosophy with winemaking? Oh, you know, that's a great question. This is a good story. So three, four years ago, I was working, I think, the, the Bite of Oregon, which is a real classy festival. And I had this lady come up to the booth, and she was a pretty serious drinker. She knew her stuff. And when she learned that I was the winemaker, she got really intrigued, and she asked me, what is your winemaking philosophy? And I never thought about that. And my response to her is, I try to make a wine that people like and they want to buy, which ultimately is what we're doing. Right. You know, we're trying to make an awesome product that people are going to come back and buy and buy again. So she didn't like that response. She turned around and walked away. It doesn't away. really set you apart from the other winemakers, no. I've got to say. I think she wanted me to say something like, you know, Mother Earth and the sun and the, the breeze and, you know, salmon and all of that. 
stuff, but I, I just dumbed it down. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're all trying to do in the business is make a good product that people will buy. But I think she was looking again for more of a, an elaborate, you know, answer to her question. And that's not the way that I am. Um, and that's not the way that our brand has been. That's not our brand image, you know, not that way at all. Do you have any thoughts on how to make it more approachable for people? So if you're looking to learn more about wine, like I said, get out and taste. If you do go out tasting, what I tell everybody is have a taste, maybe two tastes, and then dump it out. Don't finish every pour because otherwise by stop two or stop three, you know, you're not really going to know the difference between the different wines that you've been drinking. Tastes like wine. Exactly. And then, you know, like here's an example. I was in Walla Walla couple years ago and I went out and did some tasting and they have great big heavy heavy reds and after winery too I mean my tongue was just cooked it just couldn't taste anymore because the reds are just so big and heavy in Walla Walla in particular that you just lose your sense of taste so it's always good to have something to eat in between you know if not crackers you know get something a little bit more substantial but they always do say you need to cleanse your palate, which sounds kind of you know fancy, but it is true. I mean, you need to you need to clean your your tongue. You need to you know freshen it up in between different tastings. But just get out and taste and see what you like and what you don't like, and then you'll kind of understand. You know, I lean more towards the Pinot Gris, or I lean more towards the Chardonnays. And then as you break into the Chardonnay family, you'll start to learn that there's different oak levels that different winemakers use, and your preference might be less oak, it might be more oak but just get out and taste. That was, that was another question. Uh, this is from Andy Jerome. She wanted to know like what makes a wine dry. What's happening when, a, when people are saying that it's a dry. That's a, that's a great question. A lot of people associate dry with bitter or tannic, but what dry really means is there's no residual sugar. So the grapes come into the winery. We test the sugar levels. You know, it might be 23% sugar, it might be 25, and then we start the fermentation. And the fermentation is where yeast converts the sugar into alcohol. But the primary product of fermentation is CO2. So if I let that wine ferment and it just stops on its own, that means there's no sugar left. So if there's no sugar left, that means it's dry. But again, some people confuse dry with bitter and astringent but dry means there's no residual sugar left in the wine does that mean it's not as sweet correct correct so here's here's a great example so the ice wine that we made this past fall we froze the grapes we pressed the grapes since the grapes were frozen what came out was just the sugar not the water because the water was left behind frozen inside of the grape so when we pressed it it came at 44 percent sugar which is incredibly high the Riesling that we made it from when we actually pressed to make a regular wine came in at 21 percent sugar so we fermented that wine down to 17 and a half percent residual sugar so if you look on a wine label you might see that the alcohol levels are low especially on like white wines the reason they're low is because there's residual sugar in the wine and how, they, how we stop it is we have to filter or stop the fermentation with, with, with temperature. So dry means no residual sugar in the wine. Like a little bit of a weird question maybe, although I imagine a lot of people would think about it. How does that play into a hangover? That's a great question. So 
obviously a hangover is you're dehydrated. If you if you're drinking like a lot a lot of sweet drinks, you know the sugar is probably going to give you a headache and give you a stomach ache on its own. But with a hangover, you're probably best not to drink too much. Number one, <laughs> obviously, and then also keep away from from sweet you know mixed drinks or sweet wine sweet wine yeah that'll do you do you that'll, in that'll do it that'll do it so it's the congenders not to get geeky here but it's the congenders in alcohol that give people a headache so what are congenders congenders are a component in ethanol that comes from different sugars that you use to make the ethanol so if you're drinking like pure ethanol like vodka there's no congenders in there but if you're drinking wine or you're drinking any brown liquors, there's congenders. So if you're drinking like Everclear, like you're not necessarily gonna get as hungover? Well, I wouldn't recommend Everclear, but <laughs> but yeah. And, and of course, if you drink too much of it, you're gonna get a hangover. Right. But there's not the level of congenders in the clear spirits that there is in you know, some of your fructose-based um, fermentation products like wine. And then whiskeys, they have some congenders as well, and that comes from the, the, the barrels is where that comes from. So if you just want to get drunk, I guess just drink vodka, cut it with water, and that'll do the trick. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, though. No, there's a little bit more fun to be had with wine. What are your thoughts on aging in barrels versus, like, no? I've heard some places say, like, they don't want any barrels, not oak barrels, or I guess I'm imagining, like, a like metal container or something. Sure, sure. So... Um, typically the only whites that get barrel aged are Chardonnays. There's a couple others, um, but like Pinot Gris, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, all of those, you know, they're a white wine that's fruity flavored based. You don't want to mask that fruit with oak. Um, red wines, um, almost every red wine that is that's not like a jug wine, we'll see some sort of oak. Um, there's different ways to give it oak. The traditional way to give it is in a barrel, a 220 liter barrel. Um, there's other ways of doing oak alternatives where you might use a stainless steel tank or a great big plastic poly tank. And then there's different alternatives like oak chips, um, oak dust, um, and then even like staves. So there's staves that they use to make a barrel, but instead of making a barrel, they put the staves inside of that tank. Okay. But the best red wine comes from barrel aged wines, in my opinion. Um, are those oak barrels, I'm assuming? Yeah, oak barrels. Are oak barrels the only type of barrel? This is kind of a dumb question. No, it's not a dumb question. So, um, so oak is what we use in, in the business. Um, it's what they use in distilleries for yeah, I mean, even tequila, but there's different species of oak. Um, the three that are most common is American, French, and Hungarian. And the species gives a different flavor in the wine. So American oak is really strong. It gives lots of vanilla. Um, French oak's a little bit more mild, so not as much vanilla. And then Hungarian oak is kind of in between the two. And then to make it even more complicated, there's different toast levels, how, how deep they toast the wood, and that gives different flavors to the wine as well. The barrel scene is a little bit overwhelming, especially if you're buying barrels from France, because there's different forests in France that have different species within the French family that give different flavors and aromas. Because I was gonna ask, like, 
trees are probably pretty different, like one to the next. Right. Um, like subspecies or I'd imagine kind of similar to grapes, like where they're raised, what the climate was like for their 20 years of growth or. You got it. And it's, yeah, it, 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 it's overwhelming. The whole barrel scene is just, it's, it's too much for anybody to handle. So what I do is I try different coopers and then, um, I stick with the coopers that give the flavors that I like best. And the cooper that I work with, um, the wood comes from France, but the, the logs are actually imported into the States and then they make the wine or they make the barrels, um, in Missouri. Cause you know, you think about containers full of French barrels on a ship, you know, there's a lot of air that's in that barrel and it's just, you know, it's a, it's expensive to have it shipped over. Yeah. It's easier to have the wood shipped over and then to have the barrel made here. And that's what I do. Oh, what's the impact of sun exposure on the flavor? So that's another huge, huge factor with growing grapes. So you've got elevation that we talked about. Um, you've got exposure. Is it an east facing vineyard or is it a west facing vineyard or a south facing vineyard? So obviously southwest is going to be your hottest site because you're going to get that hot afternoon sun. And then east facing, you're going to get the morning sun, but you're not going to get the afternoon sun. So my estate vineyard faces southwest and it ripens earlier than my neighbor's vineyard, which is about a mile away, which faces east. So my vineyard always ripens up before my neighbor's vineyard. And what's really interesting about the two, they're only about a mile apart as far as the crow flies, but every year distinctly different wine. And there's always the underlying flavor that's there. You know, some years it's going to be more concentrated than other years. But there's always the Lari flavor, which is my estate. There's always the distinct Baron Wall flavor, which is my neighbor's. And year over year, the wine's going to be lighter or darker, depending upon how ripe the grapes are. So what we say in the business is we don't say there's good years and bad years in growing Pinot Noir. We say there's lighter years and darker years. So the cooler the growing season, the lighter the wine's going to be. The warmer the growing season, the darker the wine's going to be. And color typically is an indication of, of is it going to be fuller bodied? Because typically if the wine's darker, it's fuller bodied. And if the wine's lighter, then it's typically not as, not as, as full body of a wine. Just yet another variable. Yeah. And it sounds overwhelming, but it, it's, it's really not. And people can go back and listen to this. They can hit rewind. They can come visit. They can do one, then the other, then the other one again. You got it. And that's what's so much fun because when I pour the Baron Wall and I pour the Laurie, Baron Wall's my neighbor's vineyard, Laurie's my estate vineyard, you know, they're distinctly different. And even people that are not big wine drinkers, they can call out the difference between the two. Do you think there's any like difference in soil between the two? No, the soil's identical. It's just the elevation. They're a little bit lower than I am. And mainly it's the sun. Absolutely, it's the sun. Okay, so I saw on your website there's like, you're talking about the Larry Vineyard. Mm -hmm. The uh, soil's like well-drained jewelry with layers of ballistic rock. Uh, I have no idea what that means. So it's it's volcanic soil is what it is. So um, there's two different types of soil in the Willamette Valley, um, fire and flood. So you got volcanic soil and then you got sedimentary soil. Typically the sedimentary soils at lower elevations and the volcanic soils at higher elevations. Okay. So what does that mean for the wine? It, it, it changes it incredibly. Um, my experience is that sedimentary soil wines don't have a tendency to be 
as complicated, as nuanced. Um, the jewelry soil seems to have more character to the wine than the sedimentary soil. What does character mean? Um, so different layers of spice. So not to get, you know, to get wine snobby here, but, you know, maybe like layers of anise or nutmeg or allspice, you know, just different complexities. Yeah, it's crazy. You can get all that out of grapes, you know. Yep. And then what's, what's even more cool is you can take the same vineyard, and I've, I've done this, um, you can take the same vineyard where somebody harvests the same day and they take those grapes to their place. I harvest the same day, I take those grapes to my place, and the two resulting wines that are bottled are completely different. And it's just based on the style, the approach, you know, of what the winemaker wants to do. How about the spacing of the rows? Is that like a standard thing or can you... No, that's manipulate that's, the flavors a little bit that way. That's a, that's another great question. So, um, vine spacing, um, you know, typically seven feet in between rows, uh, maybe eight feet, and then six or seven feet between the vines. That was kind of the standard practice of what most people did here. Um, so here's an example: we planted uh, my buddy's vineyard this year, and we spaced his rows six feet apart and the reason we did six feet is because that fit his tractor so the closer the vines are the more competition the vines have and um, the closer the plants are between one another so that would be like let's say it's six feet in between plants you're going to have a three foot cordon a cordon is the i'm going to take a step back this is getting way too complicated so the spacing in between plants the tighter they're planted the less fruit per plant. The farther apart they're planted, the more fruit per plant. So imagine an apple tree with 100 apples. Imagine an apple tree with 50 apples. You're probably going to get more flavor from the tree with 50 apples than the one from 100. So vine spacing does have a, it does have a huge, a huge piece to deal with it. And I planted my vineyard super close together. My vines are four feet apart. So I get considerably less fruit per vine than most people get in the valley. So that's what the like the next part meant. Like expect a very concentrated wine from this vineyard, right? Like that's yep. That's like why or B- because the the vines are planted so close to one another. One of the reasons why, I should say. and the dirt and the sun and the wind, it's a yeah, combination talk, of. We didn't talk about wind. What's up with wind? So wind is good because you know I was talking about mildew. You know mildew is a huge pressure for you. If you've got an afternoon breeze that comes through it's gonna blow through the grape clusters, it's gonna blow and dry everything out. So wind is good, but you don't want too much wind, otherwise you know, it just wreaks havoc with everything in the vineyard. But a nice breeze is definitely welcome. So it's a little bit more, like it makes the, uh, the operational side of it a little bit easier maybe? Yeah, so you don't, you're not gonna have near the pressure for mildew if you've got a breeze that comes through your vineyard. It's like mother nature helping you prevent mildew in your vineyard. We've covered oaky. What makes a wine buttery? So buttery comes from two things. It can come from the barrel. Well, well how, so, how so for the barrel? So the barrel has, and I'm trying to remember what it's called. I want to say it's lactones. Um, I could be wrong, but different species of wood have different lactone levels. So the higher the lactone level, the more buttery it's going to make the wine. So the butter comes from the barrel, 
And then it also comes from a secondary ferment, which is called malolactic. Malic is a second acid in the wine. Malic, think apple, and then lactic, think dairy. So when you convert the malic acid into lactic acid, you're taking away that sharp, aggressive green apple flavor, and you're making it more into a butter flavor. So Chardonnays, or if it's a buttery, oaky Chardonnay, it always goes through a malolactic ferment. But like a Pinot Gris, a Riesling, all of those guys, we want that malic acid in there because that's a, a racy, fruit-driven acid. We don't want to convert it to a butter. It's kind of like a, I don't really know the right words, like like brighter. Brighter, that's a great word. And then another question from Becky Hornberger wanted to know what your like favorite kind of wine is. Whatever's in my glass. <laughs> If you ask, ask someone what their favorite kind of beer is, they say cold or free. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of both, where you're at. both of those. So my my favorite wine is a wine that's made well. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I think I gravitate more towards Pinots for the Red family. Um, I think mainly because I've drank so much other heavy, big red wines my entire life that, you know, it's just something that's not as complicated. Um but white wines, I love fresh, crisp, bright, you know, just an expression of the grape in your glass. So when I make my white wines, I ferment them cold. Uh, my objective is to make a wine that's a representation of what I taste when the grapes come into the winery. So I don't manipulate it. Um, I don't oxidize it. I just keep it clean and bright and crisp. Is there a favorite type of wine to make for you? Oh, anything that's different. I mean, you know, you get tired of doing the same old thing year over year. So this past fall, I made a Cabernet Sauvignon. I made a Tempranillo. Anything that's new. I mean, it's, it's fun to get different grapes in the winery. So this fall, we're bringing in a Petite Syrah, which I've never made a Petite Syrah. And then we're also bringing in a Barbera, which I've never done. And those are both heavier bodied red wines. Um, and then I bring it into Sangiovese. And a Sangiovese is a grape they use in, in um, Italy to make Chianti is what it is. And I've made a Sangiovese once that turned out awesome. So I'm really excited to make another Sangiovese. But just mixing it up, you know, trying different things. How early in growing season do you know when it'll be an early harvest or not? That, that's a great question. So bud break is the first thing that happens. And then after we get oh, shoot... What, what is bud break? Bud break is where... I don't know how I can describe it without getting too complicated. Like, like you can just see like the, the little sprouts. Yes. Okay. So you've got the cordons, which are the arms and then bud break is where the, the bud breaks. It's where it starts to get some growth. So after bud break, you know, the canes grow up typically depending upon the, 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 the pruning in the vineyard. And then the grapes, when they start to fertilize themselves, they self fertilize. That's called bloom. And we're going through bloom right now in the in the vineyard. And if you go out to the vineyard and you walk through the vineyard, you it, you can smell the flowers. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing. But then once you have once you have bloom, then the rule of thumb is 115 days until harvest. So I, I haven't done the math yet, but whatever you know today is to 115 days, that's kind of a good estimate of when you're going to pick. And you know, again, that's different every year. That's just kind of a rule of thumb. You know, 2013, we got those rains that came in the first week in September, and that just screwed everything up. So, like I said before, you know, growing grapes, the fall is either your friend or your enemy. 
Uh, how did you learn all this stuff, by the way? Um, a lot of people ask me, so where did you study making wine? You know, they're expecting to hear UC Davis. Um, but my response is in my garage. That's where I studied. My first fermenter was a 32-gallon garbage can that I bought from Home Depot. Um, but just making it and in reading, um, I've taken some distance cat courses from UC Davis, but most of it is just self-taught. And then when I moved here, cause obviously in Utah, there's no wineries that I could, you know, work with or gain, um, knowledge from. But when I moved here, you know, just networking with other winemakers, understanding what they're doing, what their procedure is, you know, what yeast strains they use, you know, just gleaning from the experience from other folks as well. The first year I made wine was 1999. It's that Cabernet and Riesling I told you about. The wine turned out horrible, like I said. Um, but the only good thing is that wine cleaned windows really well, so we found an application for it. <laughs> but again, just you know, just messing around, having a good time. That definitely seems to be one of like the best ways to learn, and like a trend that I've noticed from like doing these podcasts. It seems like a lot of people um, start that way. What would you say to someone who feels intimidated by not knowing enough about like whatever their interest is to start doing something? Well, first off, don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. You know, my buddy back in Utah, he told me that we can't do it because he, he knows me. He knows that if somebody tells me we can't do it, you know, I'm going to do it. If it's something you're passionate about, you know, do your research and, and just go for it. I had a, a kid call me earlier this year. His name is Sean. And Sean's going to enroll at the University of Oregon into their enology and viticulture program. And he wanted to do an internship. So he came out to the winery and I says, what do you know about making wine? He said, nothing. I said, well, you need to, you need to work here for a harvest because you'll not only gain knowledge on what we do, but you'll also see if it's something that you really want to do. Because making wine is, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, I tell everybody making wine is 48% cleaning because you're always cleaning tanks, you're cleaning barrels, you're cleaning, you know, the, all the equipment you use. And then it's 48% moving because you're always moving barrels from here to here, grapes from here to here. You know, you're moving wine from a settling tank into the barrel. Um, so 48% cleaning, 48% moving. And then the last 4% is drinking beer is what it is because it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. So the joke that I have with my, my buddies in the industry is when, whatever we get done for the night, you know, especially if it's like an early day and they're, you know, they're going to have a late day. I just text them and say, doing the 4% is what I tell them. So, but back, back to your question, I, I digress, but, um, you know, just go for it. I mean, if it's something you're passionate about, you know, just get out there and make it happen. Kind of like doing podcasts. I mean, yeah, no, just I get out there and do it. It's pretty different from winemaking. I get, a, I get a great paycheck. I mean, it pays well. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not like I can say, you know, hey, here's something that I made today. You know, I can look at a sales um, report. You know, I can look at revenue. But there's not really anything tangible that I can hand somebody that they can take home and share with their friends and family. I mean, that's what making wine is all about. It's truly sharing your almost your personality. I mean, because you put, I mean, we put a lot into it. I tell people, well, I don't tell everybody this, but I joke around with a couple people when they taste my estate wine, I tell them if they taste blood, sweat, 
or tears. It's all of mine is what it is. <laughs> because you do. I mean, you put everything into it. Not only your, your, your physical you know, work, but also your mind. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. When you were making a decision to come out here and start a winery, was it stressful bringing like, your family along for this journey? Um, you know, it's something that we talked about for years. Um, when we finally bought the property in 2007, um, it was a big stress because the market had collapsed. We had our home in Utah um, that we were trying to sell. Um, took 11 months to sell the home in Utah. We finally got our equity out of our home two weeks before we needed it in order to you know, pay down the mortgage here. It was really stressful. Um, the only good part about the stress is it was a great diet. I lost it. I lost a lot of weight, but, but joking aside, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of stress, but you know, we, 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 we survived, we got through it and I think we're stronger, you know, than we were before. How old are your kids? So I'm 45. Um, my oldest is 23. Um, my middle's 19 and then my youngest, she'll be 15 in August. How do they feel about the wine business? Oh, you know, they, they help bottle, they help with the pickup parties. Um, they don't do too much, well, they don't really do a whole lot of work out in the winery because it's not something they're passionate about. You know, it's not, it's not their thing. Um, but I think what my girls have seen and what some of our close friends' kids have seen, and this is actually a comment that, that came to me after we had our grand opening, you know, these kids see the hard work that, that I put into it and they see that the winery took off and they see that the tasting room is doing really well. And I think they look at it and say, wow, you know, you can really do this stuff. You know, you can start up a business, you can make a product, you know, you can sell it. It's not something that you just hear about, but they witnessed it. So I think it's had an impression on them. I'd like to hope, I'd like to, you know, think that, that that's the case, but... Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Uh, what advice would you give to them in terms of finding their own passion in life? Do, do what you want to do. I mean, what I tell my girls with college is don't go to college to get a degree. Go to college to get a trade. So my oldest, um, you know, she was going to do nursing, but now she wants to become an educator. And... She, you know, when she approached me on it, I'm like, is that something you want to do? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, knock yourself out. I mean, do what you want to do. Don't pick a profession or don't pick a business just based on the fact that you're going to make a lot of money. I mean, obviously you need to look at that, but pick something that you want to do. You know, what, what you're passionate about. What makes you happy? Do you have any advice on how to, on finding that passion? Man, that's a great question. It just, it, you know, it's, it, it comes from life experiences. Um, it comes from different things that you've done where all of a sudden one day something clicks. Um, so another thing that I'm really passionate about is cooking. I don't cook as much as I used to, but what kept me from pursuing my passion with cooking is working the restaurant hours. You know, it's evening into late and I didn't want to do that with, you know, having a family. Um, but you know, it'll, it'll, you'll, you'll find it somehow, somewhere. And do you think you'll ever want to retire? Well, I think even if I retired, um, and I'm still in the wine business, 
I will always have my head in the winery. Um, I'll always want to be there making the decisions, um, you know, incorporating um, other people's ideas, but I don't think I'll ever retire from it unless I can't physically, you know, do it. Um, but even if I can't physically do the work, I'll still be there. I mean, if, if I'm still in the business. Do you have any advice for people wanting to start a career in winemaking or for, I mean, it could be more broadly too for like entrepreneurs starting something of their own. So regardless if it's working in a restaurant, working in a winery, you know, just get out and do it. I mean, get a job at a restaurant. Um, you know, I think you need to experience what it's like to do that job before you go to school to to get that trade because there's there's a lot of people where they jump into something not really understanding the moving parts of it. You know, the winery is a great example. A lot of people think it's all barrel tasting and, you know, this, that, and the other. But like I said earlier, you know, it's just a lot of hard labor is what it is. So it's best just to get out and, and you know, shadow with somebody or do an internship or something. So you'd be a fan of like a gap year then? Well, so Sean, the guy that's going to intern with me, he's not doing a gap year, but he's doing a gap um, quarter. So he's not going to start his program this fall. He's going to wait until the next quarter to start it. And when he said he wanted to do that, I told him, I said, you know what? I don't want your education to, you know, this to get in the way of your education but his response back to me is, it will give me an understanding if it's really something I want to do. So I think it's a great idea. It's a great idea. I mean, I've got a lot of customers that, you know, they got their masters and then they end up working at a Montessori because that's what they're passionate about. So do what makes you happy. Where's a good place to find out more about Rallison Sellers? 16079 Southwest Railroad Street. Come by. We can chat, taste some wine. Um, and then online, I mean, obviously Facebook, I've got my website, but really the best thing to do is just to come in and taste. Okay. So one question, are the economics of winemaking good enough that people can really make money at this? Or is it more of, I mean, just to be super blunt, like a rich person hobby? You know, that's a, that's a great question because my wife always says that we did it backwards. We didn't become millionaires and buy a winery, but we're trying to make money at it. But you know, that, that is the stigma in the business. Um, the, the joke that everybody makes is, do you know how do you make a million dollars in the wine business? Start with two. So there, there's, it's really not about the money for most of us in the business. It's about, you know, it's, it's kind of an ego thing. Um, you're building a product, you're building a brand, you're building um, an awareness of something that you've created from, from ground zero. Um, for me, it is business. You know, I run it like a business and it's also a sense of hobby or a sense of accomplishment. But in the long run, if you do it right, you can make money in the business. But there are a number of large wineries where the guys became filthy rich and then that's how they started up their business. But what we did with our business is we started, you know, really grassroots. We only bought stuff as we could afford it. We tried not to finance equipment. And we've just built it, you know, step at a time. Uh, kind of a follow-up to that one. What would you do if you had less money to pursue, you know, like your passion for winemaking? I would not have built a facility where I make the wine, the winery. I would not have built a, a space that was as nice as it is. The winery is a functioning winery, but it's also used for entertaining, and it's done up really well. 
you know, we put a lot of money into the exterior and the interior. I would have done it more grassroots, a more simple building. Um, as far as equipment goes, um, I would have waited to purchase some of the big items that I did buy just based on having, you know, less revenue or less potential for capital. Um, so I just would have done it a little bit more simple. Are there ways to, to make wine without very much of a capital investment? Oh yeah, there's what's called virtual wineries, and that's where um, somebody has a winery license, they have their own label, but they make the wine at somebody else's winery, or they even pay somebody to make the wine, and that happens quite a bit. Um, so if you didn't have the capital to buy the equipment to build the facility, you could you know, rent or lease somebody else's space and do that. Okay. What's the going rate for that? You know, so I did a little bit of what's called custom crush work, and that's where somebody brought their grapes to me, and I made it into wine. But the rate for that was about $2,500 a ton. And a ton will make about two barrels, which is about 50 cases. So you're not having the capital investment, but you've got a higher per case cost to manufacture it than if you did it on your own in your own space. There's too many variables, but, you know, typically I would probably put... You know, if you're if you're a virtual winery and you're having somebody else make your wine, I'd say that your cost per bottle are anywhere from 25 to 50 percent more than if you had your own facility. Um, but again, the advantage is you don't have to put that capital out. You know, somebody else has already done that. So this would be good if someone was interested in being a winemaker, but they were like my age and didn't have like a career worth of resources behind them to put into it. But like if that was like their passion, that'd be one way of pursuing it. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that, that's a great way to, to break into it. I have a lot of people that, that come to me and, you know, they're younger and they say they, they want to become a winemaker. I encourage them to shadow, you know, go work in a winery for harvest and see if it's something that you really want to do. Got an intern this year, the first intern that I brought in. He's getting ready to start at Chemeketa, but he decided to wait to start at Chemeketa until he worked to harvest with me. Because he's a, you know, he's a blank slate. He's never done anything in winery, doesn't know anything about the business, doesn't know anything about wine. So the best way to see if it's something you want to do is, you know, go work in a winery for harvest. Um, do you think the economics are better for owning like a vineyard or for owning a winery? So the best thing you can do is grow your own grapes and make your own wine and sell your own wine. If you're growing the grapes and selling the grapes, there's not a lot of money in that. Very little. There's a lot of guys that lose money. You know, they don't make money from growing grapes. Um, but there's many reasons that people do grow the grapes besides to produce grapes. They grow it for tax reasons, farm deferral, all that fun stuff. And then guys that just buy the grapes, you know, you're paying more per ton to buy grapes typically than what you could grow it for. But again, you know, the capital investment of planting the grapes and then also, and then also the property as well. I was thinking like if you had to put down like I don't know, between like half a million to a million, depending on like what your view is or whatever, um, or, or more. I'm sure there are plenty of places to go for way, way more. Just for like bare land, like you're paying, an in, you're paying interest on the land. I can't remember the name of the author, but there's a book that's called Oregon Viticulture. I think it's Dan Hillman. But I read that before I moved to the Northwest, and he put it, you know, for a business, he put it at 30 years for your return on the investment. If you've already got the property um, and you're not factoring in the property, then it's going to be much less than that. One of my buddies, we planted two acres of Pinot on his property, 
and he's not going to do any of the farming. He's going to pay somebody to do it, and then he's just going to sell his fruit off. But we did, you know, a best guess based on annual expenses and his return on his investment just to pay for planting and to pay for all the labor was 10 years for him just to recoup his money. But again, he's got other advantages because he's already got the property. So now he's getting, you know, the farm deferral and all of the labor that has anything to do with the property. You know, that's all a write-off because it's all, you know, an impact on the vineyard. Do you feel like when you were buying your vineyard that it was, or I guess for like as you've been assembling the whole like package, uh, was it an advantage to be like both the winemaker and the person buying the property? Absolutely. Um, cause if I didn't know how wine was made, I wouldn't know, you know, how to position the winery, how to design the winery. I wouldn't know what's needed in the winery. Um, so it definitely was an advantage. When you were buying this particular piece of property, were you looking at like the soil type and the direction of the sun yep, and all of the above, all of the above. So when we were trying to find the property, you know, I found a lot of great big, you know, 20 acre lots that I fell in love with. They were too far removed from the suburbs. So my wife always said no to those. And then when this spot came open, um, it was smaller than what I wanted. Um, but it was close to shopping, close to schools, good school district. And it met everything that I needed. It had the right dirt, right elevation, right aspect. So the only downside is it was smaller than what I envisioned. But now that I've got, you know, the smaller vineyards planted and I'm doing some of the farming, I'm glad that this is all that I have planted because it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. That farming's like probably the hardest way to make a living I can think of. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many things. It's out of your control. Yeah, I mean, just the, the sheer risks compared to like the amount of work you put in. Like, like you can't win a good risk reward. No, you can't. And like my buddy says, when, when we have good years with grape growing and the wine turns out really well, he says, you know, well, you got sunshine, make hay. So you're going to have good years, you're going to have bad years. And um, growing grapes, it's all in the fall. You know, like this year we had a real late spring, wet spring. So we're behind what we've been the past, you know, three, four years. But if we have a nice long, you know, Indian summer, the harvest will be awesome. But if it's not a good harvest, it's not going to be a good wine. If it's not a good wine, you're not going to sell it or you're not going to get as much out of it. So farming is definitely a risk. New topic. Have you thought about putting like sign out by the road where people can find it? No, I don't want people to find the winery. So the tasting room that we opened up four months ago, yeah, that's where everybody tastes. The, the winery itself will do private tastings. But also my land use, um, which is a whole separate topic, does not allow me to have a sign because I'm not permitted to have an open to the public tasting room in the winery. But I can do private tastings, which we do. But since the tasting room opened, you know, most everybody goes to the tasting room. But earlier today I had a a group come through. um, And that's probably been just the fourth group that have come through since I've opened up the tasting room up at the winery. Is that an aspect of the business that you want to advertise, or are you trying to kind of like tamp it down, direct everything to the tasting room? I want to direct everything to the tasting room. A couple reasons why is we can serve more people there. Um, And if I'm opening up inventory, if I open up seven bottles of wine to taste for two people, you know, that seven bottles of wine is, you know, it's it's wasted. 
unless I have my buddies over and drink it, which we've been known to do that a time or two. On a Sunday, I'll call them and say, hey, I've got a problem. I've got seven bottles of wine that's opened up. And they're gracious enough to come up and help me take care of it. So they're team players. But, you know, just from a, a cost standpoint, it's more economical to have people go to the tasting room than to have them come up to the winery. Have you thought about other different kinds of spirits at any point? Like a craft tequila or something? No, I've really never been into into spirits. Um, or how about beer? Well, yeah, beer. I mean, that's what got me into it. You're making that in college? Have you thought about Because there's a ton of breweries out around Yeah, there's here. a lot of breweries, but I'm just not passionate about beer. I mean, beer's good, don't get me wrong. You know, it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. When you're making wine, you're not drinking wine, you're drinking beer, but wine is, is, is my passion. But um, talking about spirits, this past fall, we actually had 240 gallons of wine distilled, of my wine that we made distilled, and we ended up with 25 gallons of 192 proof clear brandy. And what we did with that brandy is we fortified some wine to make some port wine. So, you know, to answer your question, that's the only spirits that I've had any involvement in. But 192 proof, oh my gosh, I mean, you would just put it a drop on your finger and it would burn. I don't think your body would let you do a shot of that. It was just pure ethanol. But like whiskey and tequila, that's, you know, 80 proof or 40% alcohol. So it's over double. But, you know, the upside is that that port that we made turned out really good. And I've poured a little bit of it and people love it. So I think that's probably as far into the spirits, you know, arena that I'll get. Why do you think you like wine so much more than beer? So what wine's more challenging. Um, beer... You can buy a 55-pound bag of two-row, and you can make a batch of beer. Two weeks later, you can go buy another 55-pound bag. With making wine, you get one shot. You know, when the grapes come in, when they're ripe, when they're picked, you know, that's your shot to make something out of it. If you screw up, you know, two months later or a week later, you can't say, hey, I want to go buy some more grapes. So it's the unknown and it's the challenge that make winemaking so much more interesting for me. Oh, yeah. One thought I had on the beer thing was you're, you're more or less buying a commodity, right? Pretty much. I mean, you're buying... More just, so than grape. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you go to the grocery store, you can buy flour. You know, you can go back and buy the same flour. Um, that's the same with making beer in the sense that all grain pretty much is the same. The one difference with making beer, and I'm, I'm sure if there's a brewer that's listening to this, they'll probably disagree with me, but... The one piece with making beer where there is a variable is the hops. Because hops, you know, they pick them, and then they dry them, and then they typically put them in a pellet. But, you know, hops can have different IBUs, which is bittering units, based on the harvest. So maybe one year the harvest on Cascade is, you know, whatever, 8 IBU, and then maybe the next year it's 10. That's a variable. But making beer, again, you can always go buy more two-row. You can always buy more grain. With wine, you can't, a month later, I want to buy some more Pinot Noir. You know, you get the one shot when it's picked, and that's it. It's just way harder. It's, it's, it, it's harder, but it's, but it's also exciting. Because every year, you set out to make the best wine you've ever made. I mean, that's what we say every year. We're going to make the best wine we've ever made. Um, and... It's, it's like Christmas time when the grapes come in at the very beginning. And then at the end of harvest, it's like, I don't want to see another damn grape for the rest of my life because you just get so tired and exhausted. But it's exciting. There's no doubt about it. 
Is there any part of, the, of you that wish you had just started sooner? Um, you know, I'm 45. Um, this will be my 18th harvest. There is a piece of me that wishes that I got my license sooner, but I don't have any regrets um, because I knew, you know, I knew the winemaking process and I'm glad that I didn't jump into it um, not knowing what was going on. So, you know, earlier would have been better, but I don't have any regrets for taking my time to get it going. Okay. So conversely, would you wish you had started later? Like after you had a few more years of like practice and skill growth before making the big investment? No, just because I'm getting old, you know. I think if I would have started, you know, much later, I wouldn't have the the physical strength and endurance to do what needs to get done. So I think it worked out okay. How often does your wine surprise you? Oh, all the time. I mean, you know, there's a lot of wines that I've made that, you know, we open up a bottle, we drink it, and it's like, I can't believe I made that. Um, But my like in a good way. In a really good way. So my favorite memory was 2012. Um, it was the second harvest for the Lari Vineyard, which is our estate vineyard. Beautiful harvest. We made the wine, put the Lari in the barrel. And then a month later, you know, I came out and pulled a sample out and smelt it and tasted it. I was just floored. I was just amazed that it was my vineyard and my hands that made that wine so I took that glass of wine and I ran up to the house yelling for my wife you got to taste this you got to taste this it was it was a surreal moment for me because you know making the investment to move making the investment to pack up the family and plant the vines and build the winery get the license everything we went through that moment it was like yeah I, I think we, we we did something good so that was a surreal moment for me thank you again Cheers. Speaking of tasting, let's get drinking. Thanks again to Jared Rallison. You can find him at the Tasting Room in Sherwood on Railroad Street and on RallisonCellar.com and on Facebook under Rallison Cellars. Follow them to get notices about special events and goings on at their winery, as well as other opportunities you can be part of. Music for this podcast is by the intergalactic purveyors of psychedelic rock known as Cambrian Explosion, whose music is available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and at cepdx.bandcamp.com. What with the total solar eclipse coming up this August 21st, this might be a great time to download their stuff and enhance that experience. You can find more episodes like this one at nicholaspeel.com, it's P-I-H-L, it's Peel, and on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me improve this podcast by sending feedback to whytrypodcast at gmail.com. Just let me know what you think, anything you change, what you like, what you don't like. Any feedback is good feedback. For updates about upcoming episodes, check out the Facebook page Why Try the Podcast. Help others find this podcast by liking and sharing the Facebook page Why Try the Podcast or by leaving a review on iTunes. You can also follow me at Why Try Podcast on Twitter. If you have any ideas or recommendations for guests, let me hear them. Maybe you have a friend or family member who's studying something cool. Whatever it is, I'd love to hear from them and share their story. Thanks for listening.